valley was gone. We feel just as heavy as lead, but we never get up to the stars and bring the breakfast up. Okay, uh, welcome to episode 54 of God's Own Scale podcast. This one is a little bit different. Uh, It's about as near live as I'll ever get to recording a podcast because um, there's no preamble. uh, There'll be no uh, post-interview ramble. I've got my guest in front of me um, and uh, he's going to be with us throughout the episode. Um, And... The reason I'm doing it like this is because there's a little bit of a time pressure in the fact that uh, we're going to be talking about uh, a wargaming event that takes place on the 1st of July, uh, which, as I sit, is about nine days away, something like that. So we need to get the word out and spread the word around. But I've got somebody with me who I suspect most of you will have a set of rules uh, on the shelves that's been written by this chap. Uh, he's been a fairly prolific author of Wargaming Rules for some time. I'm not going to give his age away, but I've got Mr. Chris Pringle with me. How are you, Chris? Very well, thank you, Sean. Great to be with you. Likewise. Um, I'm not giving your age away, but <laughs> uh, you've been writing rules for some time, haven't you? Decades rather than years, yes. <laughs> And I guess I guess that means that uh, you've uh, become a mature uh, author in that uh, you've you've tried and tested almost every mechanic I imagine that's ever come out. Tried a few different things, yeah, and also with whatever mechanisms you dabble with. Um, I suppose it's a bit like what Marshall Foch said in the First World War. You know the famous quote. It takes 15,000 casualties to train a major general, something like that. So I don't know how many bored and frustrated war gamers and rubbish games it takes to train a rules writer, but <laughs> I hope you, I'm a bit better at it now. You've possibly tested that theory out in yeah. your earlier days. Um, yeah, so we've had a, a little bit of a chat off there and I've certainly got a, a, a line of wargaming uh, books on my shelf here that I've got your name uh, on it. Um, and we're going to get into, into your uh, rules writing and your war games philosophy. And then uh, we'll talk about bloody big battles, which is uh, the current zeitgeist, I think mm-hmm. in, uh, uh, in wargaming later 19th century battles but not specifically late 19th century battles because they've been uh, adapted and modified for many different eras of war um but before we do uh we have the section we uh, or i like to call first last and everything so this is your first war game the first proper war game that you can remember playing with rules and dice rather than rolling marbles at things the last war game that you played and the and the war game that means the most to you whether that be uh, due to the people around the table, or the game that you're playing, or the battle you're recreating. So, so what what was your first proper war game, Chris? First proper war game was with my neighbour Tim, who was a year older than me, and introduced me to. I guess it was Don Featherstone's rules. It was a Western Desert battle. I think there might have been a tiger and a crusader involved. So that sounds one-sided. I can't tell you how the how the game went, but the models to me as a 10 year old were beautiful and uh, the game was fascinating and never looked back 
Yeah, it's, these these things really, uh, uh, certainly at that age, I think, because you're, you're sort of finding your way in the world and you're developing it, new interests and then something like a war game comes along and it's like, goodness me, what's the, what's this all about? The yeah, excitement, yeah. that excitement of thinking I can roll dice and actually play a game with these models that... I perhaps been brought for my birthday or for Christmas, so I absolutely, um, yeah, I, I acknowledge that. As, uh, I, I, I am famously uh, very ignorant about tanks, but I do know what a <laughs> tiger tank looks like. Yeah, <laughs> a tiger is one that I do recognise. Uh, so your last war game, Chris. Last war game was last week uh, when Graham and I got the. Um, old Cold War micro-armour out. Goodness um, me. Yeah, because he was a Cold War warrior defending West Germany against the Soviet hordes. Um, so he'd war-gamed it all on the tabletop. And we just thought, well, we've got some T-72s and leopards and um, looks like they're being used now. I wonder how that goes. So it was it was a very um, knowingly naive, I guess, setup of somewhere in Ukraine. Um, and I don't have a, a great idea of, of how the forces operate, what they've got, but we sketched something out and pushed some tanks around. Um, and it was a big departure, big departure from what I usually do and pretty interesting. Um, no great simulation of anything, I suppose, but maybe gave us some insights. And you're rolling dice with a friend. You're rolling so, dice with a friend, yeah, and you know it's a nice rule set, and you get the toys on the table, and yeah. and I hadn't had a game for a few weeks as well, so that that helps. Yeah, that always helps. Yeah, I get <laughs> always get a bit twitchy when I haven't played a game yep. for a while. Got the hankering. Um, okay, so that's first and your last. What would you say is your everything war game? The one that means everything to you? Mm, I guess it has to be. BBB Gettysburg, bloody big battles, because um, Getty, Gettysburg, iconic's an, an, an overused word, but let's say it's, it's an iconic battle, isn't it? And That's a shadow of a doubt, yeah. And I got to play it in Virginia, my scenario, with guys who know the battlefield very well, uh, one of them even got married on it, um, and they've walked it many times. And, well, firstly, the scenario lets you fit all three days of the battle into something like 12 turns, four-hour game-ish. We've actually done it down the club in three hours, including setup and takedown. Wow. Um, but wow. that was cracking the whip a bit. Yeah. But to, to do that game with these guys who are really into it, uh, and then afterwards, Scott, who who knows it so well, said to me, Wow, now I get it. He, he, we got the game done. We did the whole battle, and it helped him understand this battle that he already knew so much about. So that it's quite an important scenario to have done, and for it to be received so well uh, means a lot to me. That's incredible. That is. Um, uh, listeners will know that the American Civil War is my. Um, Favorite period, yeah, my passion. It is my passion, um, and 
I've, I've fought, refought Gettysburg several times using various sets of rules, but sure. never had the opportunity to play that whole thing from day one through to, well, mm-hmm. do you get to day three? <laughs> you know, it, it's, not, not it, always. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it, the situation on the table might be that different that you might not even get to day three. So, uh, but to have the opportunity that uh, you start on day one uh, with that attack uh, from the Confederates and then see how things pan out. I've not managed yet. Mm-hmm. However, um, there's two two sets of rules that I'm, I think could do it for me. One is bloody big battles, and the other is ultra freedom. Sure. Uh, from the uh, Little Wars TV guys, um, but to play that game in Virginia with people that know the ground, mm-hmm. that is something else. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. It was a great occasion, and um, yeah, of course we all had a great time. Yeah, because I, I think I think particularly for people on this side of the pond who haven't been to Gettysburg, and I haven't been to Gettysburg, um, really, it's very difficult to imagine just how the slopes work and the the hills and how important these features were. But to have people who know the land intimately because they've walked it, and then turn to you and say, "Now I get it." Mm. That must have been very satisfying as a yeah. rules writer. Hugely, yeah. yeah. And I was quite proud of how I um, handled the the sickles problem, if we can call okay. it. Okay. Yeah. You know yeah. how sickles uh, kind of exceeds his brief, doesn't he? He decides that terrain in front of him really needs to be held contrary yes. to what he'd been told. So he uses initiative and pushes his core forwards. So how do you? How do you deal with that? How do you put that into a scenario for the whole battle? Because mm. uh, you don't want to straight jacket players and, and you don't want to force events that are peculiar. So the scenario, actually, uh, you don't know the victory objectives until after the end of day one. Mm. And there's three possibilities. It might be that um, Sickles has decided the Peach Orchard, I think it is, is, is yes. an, an objective. Uh, or it might be that, for his own reasons, Meade has decided Gettysburg needs to be held, or the U.S. High Command has decided Gettysburg itself needs to be held. And then the third is um, Meade and Co. at one point seriously considered a big right hook um, around, I forget what the hill is, north of Culp's Hill. But there's a, a big hill there that they couldn't yeah. come over the top of onto the Confederate left flank. So you don't know until the end of day one, which of those three is one of the objectives? As well as obviously the round tops and Cemetery Hill and Cemetery Bridge. Yes. And that seems wow. to work well for setting up the game. And is that scenario available online? And I know you've got various scenarios on the Facebook group and the IO group. It, it is, yeah. It, it's a freebie. Um, I set up a Yahoo group originally for BBB and then those got closed down so we migrated to groups.io and it was just a natural thing to do that scenarios that we did that weren't in the published books we just stuck them up there and more and more people have started doing scenarios of their own I guess there might be a hundred scenarios in there across various conflicts yeah lots lots of resources 
it's quite a collection, isn't it? Um, and as yeah. you say, does is there anything earlier than Mulburian? Uh Not on the group. No. Um, people have done earlier. Uh, yeah. Bruce at the Oxford Club has got beautiful two mil armies for doing. Um, well, I shouldn't call it the English Civil War because he's doing the Scottish end of it. Because he's a jock. The British Civil War. Yeah, the War of the Three Kingdoms. Three Kingdoms. That one. So people have done English Civil War or War of the Three Kingdoms. Um, But I don't think there's any scenarios for that up there. So Mulburian is probably the earliest. And and the rules we're referring to there there are bloody big battles, which we're going to come on to. So let's get into your history uh, regarding uh, rules writing. Mm. So, how, how did it all start? Where, where did you first begin uh, writing rules? Um, well, the, all right. The, the facetious reason is I found I had access to cheap printing. Um, but the the, the, <laughs> the the serious answer. All right. I'd. Um, I suppose, warring empires. My first rules. It was partly because of my reading about the period which is a bit obscure russo-turkish war was my big thing and Mm. there wasn't a whole lot for that and i'd played some rules and then i played you know other war games rules for various periods and found a lot of what we were playing then was just really slow moving incremental games not a lot happened from turn to turn not many interesting decisions to make a bit boring and automatic armies like there's too much control, whereas my reading, not to mention a bit of part-time soldiering, suggested that soldiers don't always do what they're told. Things don't always go the way they're planned. So, I wrote Warring Empires. I think I first knocked it together just to lay on a club game. Um, we had an invitation to a couple of neighbouring clubs and had a, a big Sunday, uh, and I sketched out these basic rules for a Russo-Turkish game and they seemed to work so I developed them into a proper coherent set uh, irregular miniatures bless them um, agreed to distribute them and um, that, that's where it came from and that's where it went so that was Warring Empires which was primarily so I could play with my Russo-Turkish armies but also to cover all of the big European wars, particularly of the late nineteenth century. Yeah, the um, I think there's um, also Turkish um, not orders of battle, but examples, aren't there, in the back of that uh, that book? Maybe on on the inside back cover, actually. Yes. Um, and it's a period about which I knew absolutely nothing. <laughs> uh, I'm probably not alone in that. <laughs> no. Um, but. Uh, as, as I mentioned, Warring Empires, were, we played a hell of a lot uh, back in the day. Um, so that was distributed through uh, irregular miniatures. Um, was there anything else that came after that prior to uh, Warring Empires turning into Principles of War? Um, yeah, there was. Uh, um well, I, I did a couple of other rule sets in between times, if that's if that's what you mean. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Scott, who I mentioned uh, about in connection with Gettysburg, um, 
I'm getting ahead of myself here. The next thing was a fine Yorkshireman actually turned up in Oxford, uh, Nick Mitchell, um, who was a fantastic modeler, beautiful 300 scale tanks, uh, and joined the club. And somehow um, he got the two of us to develop some rules to to do Second World War games. Um, and this time uh, there was one central idea to the rule set, which eventually got published as TAC, TAC World War Two, which is a terrible name. <laughs> it's <not laughs> rubbish. I'm quite, quite uh, fond of it actually. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, well, uh, I, I might call it something different if I did it again. But yeah. the, the point of it was tack. The central element was having to do a tack role, a tactical competence role for your companies, because that was the basic unit, to change mode. The idea being um, it, you can't just go straight from defense to attack. And there are different, uh, different flavors of defense and attack deliberate defense or hasty defense and hasty attack or deliberate attack and and march is a different mode again and to move from one to another maybe you have to go through a confused mode unless you're particularly competent so you, you had to do tack rolls to change modes and what mode you're in obviously had the kinds of effects you'd expect being better at firing or uh, easier to hit or getting more shots off and who gets to fire first and all those things so that was quite a good central idea um, and again a regular carried it and a number of people uh, liked it and there are still people playing it apparently I, I haven't played TAC for years but people do I understand and are keen for it to be published again so I think we'll just put a PDF up and those who want to play it can play it it, it was a, a set of rules that I remember back in the day. Now, I, d I can't remember whether it was ever reviewed in one of the magazines, but it seemed to have a lot of people uh, supporting it uh, and, and saying that the that central concept of the tack roll mm. was pretty revolutionary at the time. Um now, I don't know when we're talking now. Was this pre-Spearhead coming out? But even even Spearhead hasn't got that element to it. You, mm. I don't know if you've ever, ever played Spearhead. but I, I have, you, yeah. It, yeah was, so you, it was about thought, the same time. There was a year or two. Uh, and it's a similar level game, isn't it? But you yeah. draw your, your, your uh, command arrows in Spearhead and then basically everything moves with it. Mm. Whereas with TAC, you've got this this friction, which is such a well-used yeah. term now in, in modern-day yes. wargaming, isn't it? But you, you were doing it in the early 90s. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, long before we ever thought of the word friction. I don't, I don't know if... Friction seems to be quite a sexy term that's bandied around, but I don't remember people talking about friction in the early 90s. Uh, yeah, it's come into currency, hasn't it? Though it's, yeah. uh, I believe it go comes from Clausewitz back in 1831. Oh, yes, yeah, we, we haven't invented it. <laughs> I think there was a few people beforehand that talked about it. But in wargaming terms, I'm not yeah. sure that we talked about we all need friction in wargaming. Mm. Yeah, but and, and, and I suppose... And the tap roll gave that. Yeah, and you can, you can tell from my rule writing that uh, command and control and friction are 
central obsessions of mine, the, the challenges that a, a general faces, or a lieutenant, or whichever. But um, making a plan and implementing it um, with some fog of war and friction going on, yeah. those are the problems that I think are interesting, and turning those into interesting decisions for players to make on a tabletop that's the rule writer's job in my view yeah yeah and then that developed didn't it did you you mentioned scott yeah like you say that was that was about the same level as spearhead tack you'd have maybe three battalions or so uh, aside scott um got in touch with me uh we met and and he said he wanted to um, do a skirmish version of Tack, which we did, and that became Ark of Fire. I don't know if you ever played that. But that never played it. No, it's on the uh, shelf, but it's one of those that I've, uh, I've never actually played. Yeah. And um, yeah, well, that, that was just the same uh, modes and Tack roll concept translated to skirmish level. So instead of um, changing mode for a company, you're changing mode for a section or a weapons team uh, and again that got popular for a while and had its adherence um, and I remember there was a there was a Vietnam veteran who used who, who got to play a Vietnam scenario and enthused about it said it really captured it for him there were guys in Iraq playing it while they were doing the real thing by day and then playing Ark of Fire by night um, so that was good and there again there are still people playing Ark of Fire. Occasionally people yeah. get in touch and it's, it's good to hear. Uh, yeah, I mean, that 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 must be, again, something very satisfying to hear. Uh, veterans or, or at, actually active service mm. soldiers saying that we, we like the set of rules. That's that quite a seal of approval, isn't happens. it? Yeah. You can't get much better, to be honest, <laughs> let's face it. Yeah. Um, so uh, um, we talked about Warring Empires, but then at some point they evolved, didn't they, into... Now, I'm not saying that it wasn't a professional publication with Warring Empires, but it was the very much the old school, wasn't it, sort of photocopied yeah. and stapled together, yeah. whereas Principles of War, which was the evolution, came out as a... It wasn't a colour book, but you know it was a it was quite a dense volume, wasn't it? Yes. Well, that was Tom Penn's project, I think, and he had bigger ambitions than I ever did for Warring Empires. I I just wanted to get some rules out there that might help people play the Russo-Turkish War, which was one <laughs> yeah. time, and, and that worked. Whereas um, he developed it into a, uh, I guess more tightly regulated rule set that you could then use for competitions. And it was used a lot for competitions, I yes. understand. Um, so, you know, that, that's all great. I wasn't I wasn't directly involved. Um, but How I'm, did that work, though? Because obviously the war, principles of war is basically war in empires with a new coat on. It, so it's the same mechanics. And, you know, you own that intellectual property, as it were. Well, there's no copyright on on rule mechanisms, and mm. um, no, it, it was significantly different to justify publishing it as a separate rule set. And I, I've been on both sides of that, so I, right, I, uh, it's, 
it's all right. It's, it's... I'll bow to your your uh, more learned uh, opinion then mm. on that because uh, it, it that as an outsider and a, a layperson that that surprises me because um, that they are almost the same game. Yes, there's there's perhaps an added there's some added layers yeah, uh, yeah. on the on principles of war and. Principles of War was to, well. It went into second edition, didn't it? And then there was the Napoleonics, there's the Renaissance yep, versions yep. of the, and the Seven Years' War, actually. Um, so it went in many different directions, but without warring empires, none of those would exist. Now, well, there's an acknowledgement in the front principles of war. There is, you? there is, and and that's that's fine. It, that's good. Um, yeah, I'm sure Tom and his mates put a lot of work into developing and building it up yeah principles of war to do a different job yeah have you, have you played principles of war i've played it a couple of times i think yeah but you know we, we were already playing warring empires when we wanted to, to do 19th century yes. stuff and, yeah 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 mm-hmm. Let, let's just talk about warring empires then because um sure again i for me um that was something that brought something different to the table. Um, mm. And I hate to use the word again, but friction, where yeah. you weren't quite sure whether your soldiers were going to do as they were told. Mm-hmm. And also, um, there was always the chance that some ragtag, ragamuffin, militia-type unit could beat the most highly trained, yeah. well-drilled unit in the opposing army uh, because of the vagaries of the dice, which I loved because there's nothing more boring than an absolute guaranteed cert, is there, to mm-hmm, say, mm-hmm. if I put my guard unit up against your militia, well, I'm going to win. Well, who knows what the actual situation is like for those yeah. little men on the table and, and principles of, uh, sorry, gosh, uh, War in Empires allowed that because of that uh, that dice mechanic that you've got in there. So, uh, have you any memories of how that developed, how that system developed? I, yeah, I have, and it was, it was. I guess it came out quite fully formed and organic. I'd done a lot of reading. I'd done a lot of serious book collecting for a number of years since early teens. Um, lots of leather-bound volumes on nineteenth-century wars. So I'd read a ton, and the rules needed to reflect that reading about how a lot of that warfare was about developing fire lines and attrition and then eventually something cracked. So the mechanics um, were designed to achieve that. Um, The morale rule was designed to achieve that and to the mathematics of it meant you tended to bog down in static firing lines uh, and that was deliberate. Um, it was a, a general's eye view, which was why the variable unit strengths and the variable terrain, indeed, were important. Because I thought, okay, the, the general in charge doesn't necessarily know from the map whether that village over there is defensible or not, or how easy it is to get through that wood on the other flank. Not till the troops turn up. And is that stream crossable? Well, we don't know. Uh, so variable terrain and variable units and a morale rule that tended to bog you down but could be unpredictable 
that all seemed to add up and it, it seemed to just fall into place quite naturally, quite quickly, because it was based on this, I suppose, coherent view of the warfare of the period from a lot of yeah. reading. The, those two elements that you've mentioned there, the variable terrain and the variable unit strength, are, are two elements that I'm not sure have been bettered. I want to embarrass you with <laughs> over complimenting you, but I, I honestly don't because that that creates such uncertainty and really puts you in the saddle of the general on the battlefield. Yeah. So you don't really know. Okay, you might know that they're, that's your guard unit and they're really well drilled, but they might not have had any breakfast and might right. be a little bit unhappy about things or, you know. They had a dodgy have... curry. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and also that river that or that stream you're sending them up to cross, well, it might be swollen from the rain night the night exactly. before. And yeah. you might not be able to get across it quite as easily as you thought. So I, I absolutely love that element to it. And I, I, I think I mentioned to you before I press record that um, I've got six mil Crimean mm. uh, figures and they were bought specifically to use Warring Empire. And I've had many great games with those um, oh, using uh, Warring Empire. Um, and it's, it's, it's got a, it's got a place in my heart, Warrior Empires. I was say. Oh, that's lovely. A set of rules. <laughs> <Mine too. laughs> uh, it really has. Um, however, there's a, a, a bigger brother on the on the uh, on the scene now. Um, oh yeah. And that that wasn't a pun, but uh, bloody <laughs> big battles, um, and the the Crimean forces that I've got uh, for or I had for Warrior Empires have now being uh, bolstered with extra figures mm -hmm. from irregular uh yeah to 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 build them up to uh, bloody big battles uh so tell me all about bloody big battles it's, it's a real mouthful chris i have to say <laughs> oh but it's a better title than tack isn't it <laughs> oh, tack. listen uh, we'll we'll agree to disagree <laughs> i love that and, and uh our American cousins struggle with it because bloody doesn't work in quite the same way over there. So they no, no. call it big bloody battles. <laughs> um, yeah, BBB. We, I hadn't done any Franco-Prussian or Russo-Turkish stuff for quite a few years, really. And then one day, I think this is in front of the book, actually. My mate Dave Whaley said, Chris, I want to do some Franco-Prussian again. And Warring Empires is good fun, um, but this is me talking now, not Dave. Warring Empires did a good job, but only up to about a division or reinforced division, maybe a core if there are a couple of you playing, but you couldn't do the whole battle, really. Not not the big ones. Yeah. So I said, all right, Dave, let's do it, but this time let's do it properly. I want to do the whole battle because... Franco-Prussian especially, it's really, it's all about big battles. Yes. And there's, there's no point doing skirmish. <laughs> it's just not that kind of war. No. All right, let, let's do Franco-Prussian big battles. How are we going to do it? And we got various rule sets and had a had a, a tinker. Couldn't quite find anything that worked for us. So, well, of course, that meant we had to develop our own and of course the, 
there's no copyright and rule mechanisms, so we borrowed some, um, <laughs> but evolved and adapted them. Yeah. And um, interestingly enough, some of our adaptations have then gone back into the parent, if you like. But, yeah. So we we developed this just so that we and our mates down at the Oxford Club could get some good games in. But it it soon became apparent that this was actually something quite good and something quite different and why not share it with the world so we started seriously working on not just tightening up the rules um, but also writing enough scenarios to to publish and tightening up the rules that's probably a good point to bring scott scott fisher back into the conversation because a rule set we haven't mentioned is his Check your six rules for right. World War Two air combat, which I think are the most popular rule set for that. Well, maybe, maybe there's one or two others, but it's right up there in the top two or three. Yeah, it's, it's in the conversation, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, and I, I helped him develop that, and I learned a lot from his approach to rule design and scenario design of how how to engineer things to be really uh, tight, elegant mechanisms, to strip away clutter, um, to be very clear about what your objective of the rule set is, what's the game supposed to achieve, uh, all the parameters of um, how much time it's going to take, how much table are you going to need, and how feasible is it going to be. Uh, and then scenario design as well. A very, very strict approach to uh, turn limits, uh, objectives, all, all very defined. Whereas previously, previous stuff I'd done had been a bit fuzzy, um, maybe more realistic in some ways. But uh, I saw the virtues of a very um, definite approach to knowing what the rules are supposed to do and, and sticking to that and to... Uh, tightly engineered scenarios so I applied that when we were developing BBB and when we were writing scenarios for it and playing the games I, and it paid off we just had such good games we had to share it and we had to publish it yeah when, when were they published what year can you remember I believe it was October 2014 <laughs> Right. Okay. <laughs> just, just approximately. Off the top of your head. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we um, started. We started in two thousand and nine. So there was a full five years or more of rule development and scenario writing and play testing. Goodness me. Yeah. That's a long gestation, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I hope that work shows in the finished product. I think it mm. does. No, no, absolutely. Um, so what would you say is the unique selling point of, of BBB? Oh, it is all three days of Gettysburg in three hours from set up to finish, isn't it? Uh, it, it makes it feasible to do all the biggest battles of the 19th century, well, and previous to that as well, and some after, to do them on six foot by four, to do them with maybe four players um, and to do them in depending how well you know the rules and how much time you want to 
spend sitting back and, and mulling over the situation and admiring the toys as opposed to cracking on just rolling the dice. Yeah. Uh, a three or four hour game was the ambition and then they can all be done in that yeah. time. Um, and the rule book itself has, has got, well, just about every major battle of the Franco-Prussian War, hasn't it? Yes, yes. Um, all of which can be fit, fit onto a six by four table. And you don't need thousands of figures, do you? Right, yeah. Uh, I, I have played the games of 17 players for 17 hours on a basketball court. Literally, I've played on a basketball court. Right. <laughs> wow. Um, and that kind of thing's a grand occasion and in, in its own way. But if you want to play a game every Monday night, you need to be a bit more disciplined and, and have something yes. more tightly controlled. Yeah. 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 So um, typically a, a base in, in bloody big battles might be a thousand men representing about a thousand men. Is that about right? Uh, in the rule book, it says, oh, it's typically 1,000 to 1,500 men. Yeah. But the, one of the keys to the rules is um, it's elastic scale. And the, that's got three elements. It's the troop scale, the time scale, and the ground scale. So a, a, an average battle, yes, that a base might be 1,000 to 1,500 men. And a turn might be an hour. And... Uh, one foot on the table might be 2,000 yards. But to do a really big one, Koenigretz, Solferino, quarter of a million men, well then then you don't have any more bases necessarily than for the smaller battle. The base just represents, say, 3,000 men instead. Uh, yeah. And the, a turn is, perhaps a turn is two hours. And perhaps the ground scale is three, three and a half kilometres, four kilometres to a foot. And yeah. none of the rules change. Just those three elements adjusting in rough proportion. And broadly, yes. the mechanics still work. And scaling down in the other direction as well. Tiny battles of where you've got 500 or 250 men per base and 15 minute, 20 yeah. minute turns. Yeah, that, it's a really interesting concept that... Um, the mechanics of the actual rules do not have to change. It's just your perception and how high you are in the helicopter above the field, I guess, yeah, yeah. Uh, looking looking down. Um, and that's what fascinates me because um, the Franco-Prussian Wars, are, uh, well, uh, any of those later 19th century European conflicts were just mm. so vast. Yeah. Um, and for somebody to think, well, I, I'd, I'd like to play the big battles of the Franco-Prussian War, uh, and you start thinking in terms of figure scale of 1 to 40 or <laughs> 1 to 60, then you're still talking about hundreds, if not thousands, of figures, aren't you? Yeah. And you let's face it, you're never going to paint them. <laughs> or <laughs> if you do, it's going to take you three years. Whereas um, with the battles in the just talking about the Franco-Prussian War that are in this in the rule book, um, you state how many bases are required, and that might be 30, yes. 40, 50 bases a side yeah. with some cavalry, with some artillery. And that's really quite achievable, isn't it? And it still looks really good because the evidence is there in the photographs 
that are on the Facebook group, are on your blog, are on the groups IO, um, where people have fought these battles. And uh, you actively play these rules still, don't you? You haven't written <laughs> them nine years ago and forgotten them. You still actively play them. It's, it is my staple diet, Sean. I tell you, it's coming up 15 years of great gaming. Um, yeah. And there's a few reasons for that. One is the period has got a lot of variety in itself. So as long as you're happy with the rule set, you can play a different conflict each week and it can have a very different flavor. Yeah. So you're not going to get bored because you're playing the same game every week. Um, and there's no shortage of historical scenarios, which is my thing. Um, <clears throat> but also the, the rule set seems to keep all types of gamer happy. Because we've, you know, there's... Some of us are uh, are very into the the planning and the generalship and, and the command decisions. Um, um, some of us are competition gamers, and that's a different breed again, uh, where it's, winning is very important. Um, and then there are guys who don't care so long as they get to do a cavalry charge or a bayonet assault, something glorious. That's me. Just, <laughs> all right, yeah. But, Give me a cavalry yeah, command, I'm happy. <laughs> just, don't, just don't make you sit bored for three hours while nothing happens. Yeah. Uh, and So that we've got all, all breeds of gamer in the group, uh, and, and we've got old sweats like you and me, and we've got uh, an 11-year-old lad, and he, he's as into it as, as any of us and as good a player as any of us probably. But, and it keeps all these different types happy. And the group has grown over the years and, and people seem to gravitate towards our corner of the hall. Um, so that's why I'm still playing this same bloody game after 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> you're clearly doing something right. Um, you, you said there about um, the, the wars of the 19th century. Now, there's... There's the ones we all know about, with Franco-Prussian. The hyphenated wars. The hyphenated wars, yes. Um, chocolate box wars. Or... Yeah. But you've recently, well, I say recently, I'm not quite sure how long it is now, but you, you've you've moved into sort of left field with some of your own personal gaming and research and, and writing with um, something in Hungary. Oh, my, my session. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a family connection, um, which has meant I've always been interested in that part of the world. Uh, and then I suppose I'm a bit lazy and it's far easier to become the expert on something that nobody else is interested in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. That's, yeah, that's a, I love so, that. So, yeah, yeah. Russo-Turkish, Hungarian War of Independence. Nobody's going to challenge you over the... Yeah, no one's going to challenge you over the colour of gators in the uh, Russo-Turkish yeah. War, are they? Yeah. But, but seriously, if you're going to do all the big wars of the 19th century, actually... The Hungarian War of Independence is one of the biggest. And you just wouldn't know it because nobody knows about it. Because no, because the Austrians didn't write about it because they were embarrassed and, and nobody reads Hungarian. No. But of course, I wanted to do it um, for BBB apart from anything else, but just for its own sake as well. And the only way to get the information I needed to do the scenarios was to teach yourself a bit of 
Hungarian and get hold of all these obscure Hungarian resources and, and, and German of course that's less of a problem and dig up all this research and um, write some scenarios accordingly using information which is so hard to find and then from that because um, I'd got into the translation business along the way a natural thing to do was to translate the two Austrian semi-official histories of the war which Helion have kindly published mm. and which seem to have been well received um, so yeah that's my Hungarian kick and there's another there's another book coming out later this year um, <clears throat> again from Helion uh, which is a modern history of the war the Hungarian War of Independence but this time it's written by I guess he's the leading authority on it Professor Robert Hermann um, so that was written in Hungarian, uh, so I had to get a Hungarian friend as a um, collaborator to translate it out of Hungary, Hungarian, and then I polished the English. So that's coming out soon. What what drew you to this then, other than the fact it was one of the more obscure wars where you're not going to get challenged uh, very often at a show or something? But what what drew you to it? Because the, it sounds like there aren't many English uh, yeah. language sources for it. No, so you, you, you're hampering yourself immediately <laughs> in yeah. finding any information to it. Uh, so, and I guess there's not many people listening now that know very much about it at all, other than, was it 1840s, something like that? 1848 to 49. It lasted a year. Yeah. Uh, what was it? Half a million or men or half a million men under arms by the end of it. And there's about 15 core-sized battles, or larger. It's quite a lot. And then, Sizeable number, yeah. And, and then infinite smaller actions and epic sieges as well. Um, and it, sometimes when you you get all excited about a period of a war, uh, and you, maybe you buy the figures and you you buy the book and and you get stuck in, and then you realise, oh there isn't that much to it but with this one there's just more and more and more to it that's what i found it's got it's got all the colorful troop types it's got all kinds of actions and incident um so you could you could play hungary 48 war games for an awful long time before you got bored because there's tons of variety and you've I imagine there aren't many figure ranges out for the Hungarian uh, <laughs> Revolution or War of Independence. Which what, is it? The War well, of Independence let's or give Revolution? Us, it was first. It was a revolution. Yeah. And it wasn't until halfway through that they formally declared independence, because before yeah. then they were just seeking a, a bit more autonomy within the empire. Right. Devolution. Okay. Yeah. Devolution turned turned into. In a war of independence right but, um, figure ranges in 28 mil Steve Barber did a okay. range uh, which has now been taken over by Rupert Clamp um, and he is adding to that so if 28s is your thing more of those coming along but for the likes of you and me who 
who know what God's own scale is. Six uh, mil. Yeah. yeah. Six mil, it doesn't matter, does it? No. You can proxy. And yeah. I've got beautiful six mil Hungarian armies who, they mostly wore kepis, so there's an awful lot of American Civil War troops in there. Hazars are hazars. And, yeah. And Austrians. So are, are these um, Bacchus figures, I take it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I've also got some um, some irregular Austrians as well. Yeah. But, yeah, the, the, the proper armies are Bacchus. Yeah. And I've got and good value out of them. I'm sure you have, yes. Uh, and mighty fine the look, actually. And I'll, I'll put a link uh, to your blog uh in the in the show notes because um you you have fought one or two battles (laughs) and and you're very good at recording them and 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 talking the reader through the battles and and your thoughts on how the game went um and uh really showing that that period off and i came very close i i didn't buy it but I came very close to buying the first volume. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it was Partisan I was at, and, and Hellion were there, or somebody carrying the Hellion books anyway. I thought, oh, sure, no, not another project. <laughs> Maybe next year. Or we'll, we'll pick it up secondhand when some Wargamer butterfly moves on and sells it. Well, yeah, there's always that chance. <laughs> but um, I do I do like the smell of a new book, so uh, mm. I'd, I'd rather get, get it firsthand. Um, so when I first came across bloody big battles, and that was probably only last year, um, I started to do the usual thing that wargamers do and just have a little search around the internet and found your blog and the mm-hmm. groups IO. Um, but I've always had a hankering to do um, the Marlborough's Big Four battles. Ah. <laughs> Yes, uh, and uh, I think it's Matt Bradley, isn't it, or Bradley? Um, yes. He's uh, developed some scenarios. I think there might have already been a, a certainly a blending scenario on the, on one of the groups, um, but he he's he's sort of up the scale, I think. So you need fewer figures, which always attracts me. Uh, yeah. And I've I've made a very good start on those but when you first wrote these rules did you foresee that people might expand their use going back you know 150 years uh not that far no and um (laughs) one of my prejudices one of my axes i periodically grind and perhaps i'll bore your listeners with it again Um, anything pre-napoleon i tend to blithely dismiss as being very linear and therefore limited and dull, relatively speaking, yeah. in terms of war game potential, options for the generals and therefore options for the players. Um, and Matt's scenarios and the rule modifications, a few but necessary ones that he introduced to capture the flavour of 18th century warfare as opposed to 19th, He's done a really good job of capturing that flavour, recreating the battles, and actually also providing enough options and decisions to keep a 
fussy, easily bored player like myself amused. <laughs> and I I have had um, really good times playing his his Marlborough scenarios, his War of Austrian Succession scenarios, and he's uh, dented my prejudice a bit. Good, good. <laughs> <laughs> so have you actually played with Matt, have you, or you've, you've yes. done your own version? Yeah. Um, right. He can't get to Oxford that often, but every couple of months maybe, and so he, he's generally turned up and put on his beautiful, beautiful games. Of, oh, it's gorgeous, isn't it? Uh, Blenheim and Ramie and uh, okay, yeah, with, with yeah, villages that actually flicker. You know the old flickering cotton wool. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he he um, he puts a lot of effort into uh, into the look of the game. As, as do you, because I've I've seen the pictures that of uh, or certainly your group when you put games on um, uh, at your at your club and then you've reported on them. Um, I would just touch on that a little bit, if that's okay, Chris, Please. because um, on your blog you have these, um, you 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 put out these small essays, don't you, where mm. you talk about the yeah. state of the hobby or how best to represent a tabletop and and make it look aesthetically pleasing. Uh, did you get a lot of joy out of writing those? I do like those. Yes, the the bread and butter, I suppose, of the blog is the after action reports and that's easy great we we played a game here's some photos this is what happened and here's some thoughts from the game but that's um that's only so exciting up to a point isn't it and i think of more interest to myself to write and probably to readers to read is to go a bit deeper into as you say some aspect of the hobby um whether it's how rules should reflect the use of reserves or um, what different types of gamers want from a game, How what's important, the aesthetic or the gameplay or just having a beer around a table with some mates. So I, I think those kinds of topics are worth discussing and interesting to discuss. And I, I do try to leaven the after action reports with a few of those from time to time. And and it shows people are interested in them because they often get a lot of comments. Um, because these, we all like to talk about this stuff, don't we? And so lots of people <laughs> like to chip in with comments. It's why I have a podcast, Chris. Because uh, <laughs> and what, what's really interesting is that we've never met, but we can mm. talk. We could probably talk until this time tomorrow night about this hobby of ours. Oh, we could, couldn't and, we? Yeah. And, and just about every. <laughs> guests that I've had on the show is the same. Wargamers love to talk ab- about this hobby and to proselytise about it and, and say how great it is. And, and um, I think Wargaming has come out of the shadows a little bit uh, over the last few years. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's quite the, um, uh, the the opinion of it that there was a few years ago. I think it's far more of an acceptable pastime for old men yeah. to play with toy soldiers <laughs> uh, and i'm never shy of saying that there's an old man I'm, I'm playing with toy soldiers but uh clearly if you if you can hook somebody in who's not aware of wargaming by saying that and then you can if you can hook them in and, and get that little spark of interest then you can you can develop that conversation and, and say just 
what what it is all about because it, it isn't about game bang your dead uh which quite a few people think mm. uh, wargaming is about yeah. um and uh i'm sure i'm sure you remember the mike siggins uh columns in war games illustrated oh yes many years ago uh, which would always um, latch onto a hot topic of the day and often be quite almost a devil's advocate approach mm-hmm. to sort of generate debate and provocative, yeah. be provocative. But your pieces that I've, that you write, which I, I really enjoy reading every time you, you put one out, um, it just generates thought and it generates ideas and interest and and perhaps just taking a look at something from a slightly different angle maybe or mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah just just generate getting the old brain ticking over so uh, i applaud you for those um and and please continue doing that for sure well <laughs> you know hopefully mulling over this kind of stuff encourages other gamers to mull over what we're doing why we're doing it how we could or should do it and perhaps do it better according to their own individual victory conditions and get more out of it and yeah and if if it helps a few people few people to have better games and more fun then great yeah absolutely absolutely I, i think we're in the entertainment business that's especially when there's so many other things competing for people's time and attention mostly time i think yeah uh, there's so many other things people could do than sit around in a village hall with some boring old gits rolling That's dice right. yeah. so the trick is to be interesting old gits and and yeah. um yeah more fun well, it's got to be entertaining as you've got yeah. to enjoy because if you're going down there and you're grumpy and you're not enjoying yourself then frankly you might as well go and take up bowls or something <laughs> because yeah. you're wasting your time uh, pushing toy soldiers around. So, um, from my perspective, and again, doing my due diligence and, and looking around uh, how bloody big battles was received, it seems that it really caught a rich vein of interest um, mm-hmm. uh, from its release and, and to the present day because there's still an active community that's posting on the Facebook group and the IAO group is active as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't stop just at that rule book, did he? There's there's other supplements that have come since. We'll yes, talk about those a more bit. on the way. Yeah. Well, the first one we did was published at the same time as the rule book, um, so it was necessarily a bit of a grab bag. Bloody big European battles. I mean, it was it was fairly comprehensive. It covered almost all the biggest battles of the 19th century, second half of the 19th century, 16 different ones. Um, it didn't. The, the one regret is that we couldn't do more on the Austro-Prussian War in that, but that's right. been dealt with with freebie scenarios on the group since then. Um, but that that covered a lot of wars from the Crimea through to Serbo-Bulgarian and Greco-Turkish. Um, Schleswig-Holstein as well. Schleswig-Holstein, yeah. yeah. I, actually, I'm particularly proud of my Schleswig-Holstein War. It's only got one scenario, but that's really three battles in one yeah um so that's yeah that's a pretty good um volume then professor konstantinos travelos my greek friend who i've never met um but who 
we've had some great exchanges. He uh, wanted to do the Balkan Wars of 1912 to 1913, which, a bit like my Hungarian obsession, it's another um, undergamed period. It's, well, it's just so overshadowed by the following four years, isn't it? World yeah, War One. Um, <clears throat> but it's not wall-to-wall trenches, so although it's World War One in flavour, you actually get some manoeuvre. Uh, so he he'd done all the research. He's a a proper academic researcher himself, so it's all good stuff, um, and some good games to be had there. If you want, if you're into, interested in the Balkan Wars, that's the book for you. Um, my Hungarian War of Independence volume, of course. Um, well, we've got some more planned um, at quite they're at quite advanced stages. Dr. Mark Smith, another historian, another academic, um, he's been doing all of Napoleon's biggest battles. So Borodino and Bautzen and all those huge names. Yeah. Um, and again, it's get them on six foot by four and fight them in an evening. So we're just editing the last few scenarios for that. Uh, another one will be bloody big African battles. Um, about half of which will be the Second Boer War, where we've had some fantastic games. Um, and that reminds me of the one I didn't mention, which is published, Bloody Big Indian Battles, right, yes. which is um, Sikh Wars and Indian Mutiny, uh, and also Wellington's early battles when he was a sepoy general. Right. And that that's something I knew very little about and had very little interest in until I came to play Mark's scenarios. And the great thing there is the asymmetry. You've got such different forces that the two sides have got very different tactical challenges. Um, so that's good fun. Asymmetry is always good fun, whether it's quality versus quantity or yeah. mobility against firepower or whatever. And they stand up well, obviously, because uh, there's a supplement there that proves yeah. that the, the rules stand up well to the, that asymmetry, which is great. Yeah, yeah, they, they do. And <laughs> it's funny, actually. Um, you know, people talk about generals fighting the last war, turning up at the next war using the wrong tactics because they're still fighting the last war. Uh, these, Some of these games I've found I've had the opposite problem because I've been doing Franco-Prussian with my Krupp guns, and, yeah. and then I'll go back to the Sikh war in 1845 and I'm, I'm deploying the smooth bores much too far away and I'm not, not, not being nearly wary enough of the enemy's cavalry. Yes. Yeah. 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 So learning those tactical lessons is always good fun. But, but how interesting though, that um, the rules reflect that, that, you know, if you take the wrong tactic from the wrong era in, in into a game, then you'll be punished. They absolutely do. The, well, the basic engine is very simple, yeah. but then there's a few um, levers and buttons that you can add, depending what army and what conflict and what battle. Um, so not so much that you're overwhelmed with special rules, but just enough to tweak capabilities and um, capture the flavour. 
yeah yeah so these um new supplements how, how soon are we talking are we going to see them this year uh late next year i'd have thought right. well let, no where are we mid-year sometime next year sometime next sometime year. next year okay yeah. I won't hold you down to a date. <laughs> well, that, thanks for that peek behind the curtain. That'd be great. Mm. I, I'll look for especially the Napoleonic one. I know there's plenty of Napoleonic scenarios freely available again. Yeah. Um, and, the, and those places that I've talked about already, the Facebook group and the IO group, are great resources uh, for people to try once they've got the rules. They don't, you know, they, they, they can really, there's a real smorgasbord of, um, of periods and battles and situations that people can use yeah there's, there's uh, so many creative people out there who've yeah. adopted it made it their own and doing yeah. wonderful things no it's great um so with the popularity of the rules um you've got a big day coming up I, I, it's entirely unintentional when i say a big day and it's the big bloody battles <laughs> big bash day uh but it, it just trips off the tongue so uh july the first um it's bloody big battles big bash day four i think isn't it it is yes <laughs> our fourth bash day so I, I take is this the first one post covid it is um we had one scheduled ready to go in early 2020 and for some reason that didn't happen <laughs> yeah, I can't, th- can't think why. Yeah. Um, so tell me about the genesis of, of the Bash Day then and, and how you first came up with the idea of doing that. Um, popular demand. Uh, people in the club and beyond it were saying, they were just saying we ought to get together. We ought to have a day devoted to BBB. So we've done it three times in Oxford. Um, and the format's quite a distinctive one i guess it's all bbb games it's all participation games and being bbb the idea is that if provided you turn up at, at 9 nine thirty, you'll get one game in in the morning and then you can get a second game in in the afternoon or you just turn right. up for the morning or the afternoon yeah um there's quite a varied menu uh you get American Civil War, you might get some Hungary 48, Franco-Prussian, a bit of Sikh Wars. Um, in the past, people have done World War II adaptations of BBB, American wow. War of Independence. The actual planned games for the day um, can be found on on my blog, which I, I think you've got a link to. Yes, yeah, we'll post that in the show notes. And uh, as I said, we're in the entertainment business, so anyone who turns up, we will do our damnedest to fit them in, uh, give them a, a command that amuses them in a game that they want to play and give them a good time. Uh, and the venue is? The venue is, courtesy of the excellent folk at the Leeds War Games Club, um, it is the Leeds Club's own hall, Yeah. Um, which I could look up in a minute. It, that that must be uh, is that Ken Riley's club, the Yorkshire Gamers place. Then they've got their own dedicated venue, it, haven't they? It must be, mustn't it? Yeah. Um, it is Hicks Hall, sixty Bankfield Terrace, Burley, Leeds, LS4 2JR. 
That was a good effort at Yorkshire accent then, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Always like languages, Sean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too, me too. Um, so I know that one of the games on there is of particular interest to me, and I'm, I'm de- I am desperate to get there. But uh, Oh, yeah. Taxi, taxi yeah, Yes, yeah, the Chancellorsville. So you, you um, mm. that's a fairly new scenario, isn't it, that you came up with? It is, yeah. Uh, so 15,000 board war gamers have trained me to write a decent one for that. <laughs> yes, that is really, and that, that's a battle that you just don't see war games, do you? you or am I imagining no. it? No, no, you're absolutely right, because as a as somebody who's war game the American Civil War for 30 plus years, um, I've never seen it. If it's been done, it's never been done right. And it is a difficult game to get right. Yeah because of some unique, very unique circumstances. Yeah, and, and so, it's such a big, important battle the year yeah. before Gettysburg. Yeah. Um, I, I can see why most people wouldn't touch it, because it's it takes place over several days, and it's very sprawling. It's, what, 15 miles of front? Yeah. Um, I mean, the action's not happening all along the front all the time. It shifts from one end to the other. So it, it would be challenging for your average rule set to cope with. Yeah. And it, Pretty difficult terrain as well. Yes. Yes. Lots of woods. Mm. Um, but it's an obvious one for BBB to do. And it, it took some work, but I'm quite pleased with how it worked. Um you get the the major strategic movement either side of the river. Uh, you've you've got asymmetry in that the Union Army is virtually twice the size of the the Rebs, but they do have a quality edge because there's mm. there's some pretty duff Union troops. Well, and the ones who who don't really want to fight a battle because they're due to go home next week, that yes. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. That so that's that's one I wrote quite recently, and I'm very pleased with and. It would be great if you could make it. Um, yeah. If you can't, well, maybe another time. Yeah, definitely. Well, that would be the one I'll sign up for, or <laughs> certainly stand and watch anyway, because uh, I'm rather cursed with dice rolling. But uh, <laughs> um, but uh, there's again a wide sweep of of games, isn't there, from Zulu Wars uh, to yes, uh, Napoleonic, yeah. Austro-Prussian. Yeah. Yep. Promises to be quite a good day. And it's the day before the Joy of Six as well, of course. Yes, this was deliberately planned to be in the same county um, the day before Joy of Six. We we consulted Pete of Bacchus beforehand, so got his blessing that he thought it was a good idea rather than a bad one. Um, and hopefully people for whom a trek to Yorkshire would be hard to justify just for one or the other event will come along make a weekend of it and i'm, I'm yeah. sure they won't regret it no no it's the perfect perfect opportunity so um it'll be great to uh to combine the two uh for any, anybody who is traveling uh up there um chris it's been absolutely great to talk to you and and get that sort of peek behind the curtain um as, as you probably gathered, I'm a big fan of, uh, of uh, your rules. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, no, I absolutely am. It's um, I, I wouldn't have invited you on if I wasn't. <laughs> it's not it'd be a very awkward. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a very awkward conversation if I didn't actually like the rules. 
<laughs> but no, I, I do genuinely, and uh, I've got a long history with them as well. So uh, thanks for that peek behind the curtain. Um, two things I ask of any guest that comes onto the show uh, before I allow you to leave. Um, one is that uh, you agree to come back onto the show at some point in the future. Oh, that's a difficult one, Sean. <laughs> no, unhesitatingly. <laughs> unhesitatingly, yes, of course. Thank I you would very much. To. Maybe one, one of those supplements comes out. Good uh, thought. Yeah, if it's yeah. as if it's as fun a second time, that'll be great. Yeah, good. Uh, and the second one is uh, we have the God's Own Scale Virtual Library, um, which uh, is a book a book or two books or however many. Uh, a recommendation for the listeners to uh, go and. Uh, have a look at uh, and we, we deposit them onto the onto the shelves and I'm way behind on the <laughs> listing of these Charles Roundtree very care very kindly curated the first 40 odd episodes the the recommendations with Amazon links uh, on the Goods wow. Scale Facebook group uh, but this is episode 54 now so I'm way behind on keeping that up to date so I shall get around to that but uh, I'm hoping hoping Chris that uh, you've got a book or two that you can recommend to listeners I've got a couple if I could yes um, I'm I'm afraid they're quite substantial ones so you your reading backlog is going to grow gonna have to make some space on that <laughs> for some yeah. chunk, chunky tones right I, I have to recommend where it all started which was in a bookshop in chester uh, last century sometime me and my dad looking at secondhand books and there was this two volume leather bound captain hm hosier's russo-turkish war that no. was published about 1880 and it's the russo-turkish war of 1878 79 leather bound oh yeah proper books. i think i think they're the first le that's the first leather bound book we've had recommended okay well i was hoping no one would have got to that one before me <laughs> no 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 <laughs> there's definitely a gap in the russo-turkish war section of the god's own scale virtual library duly filled hosier will see you right excellent and and then a much more recent one, Christmas present it was, but I'm still working my way through it because it's substantial, uh, but very much worth it. Alexander Mikabaridze, The Napoleonic Wars, A Global History. You might have heard of it. It's, um, I have heard. I haven't read it. So I don't highly recommended. And yeah. I, I've been... One reason I'm reading through it slowly is because there is so much to learn. I'm... I'm not ignorant about the Napoleonic Wars, but I'm learning something on nearly every page. It's fantastic. Wow. And that, that covers the whole scope, does it? Of the yeah, oh, oh, it Napoleon does. You Wars. get a whole yeah. chapter on Persia or a chapter on China. Right. Yeah. So, China? Yes. Yeah. Interesting. So it, <laughs> it, it, he says it's a global history, and it is. And yeah. So he, he's ad addressing dimensions uh, that you're not usually seeing and giving you some perspective that you don't usually get yeah but really well worth it well they those two uh books will sit very handsomely on this on the virtual shelves of the virtual library so thanks for those chris thanks once again uh, for giving up your time i know um we had a couple of cancellations due to unforeseen circumstances. <laughs> yes, yes. So thanks, for, thanks for your patience uh, with that, and I hope 
uh, you think it was worth it in uh, in giving up your time. But um, I really hope to catch you at the Big Bash Day. And if I don't, then let's we'll awesome. sort something out at uh, a future date. But uh, Chris, thanks once again for your time. It's been brilliant talking to you, Sean. Best of luck with the podcast and